0: You're listening to the Electric Sheep Magazine podcast. I'm Alex Fitch, and on today's show, I'm talking to the directors of a cult film in the making and a film that's considered a lost cult classic from over 40 years ago. Later in the show, in an extract from the Q&A performed by director Terry Gilliam at the London Film Festival last year following a screening of his new movie, The Zero Theorem, I asked him how the new film fitted into his ongoing interest in people who are driven mad by their surroundings. This is also an apt subject for discussing Wake in Fright, a rediscovered classic from the early 1970s, directed by Ted Kotcheff, who would go on to make the better known First Blood, the original Rambo film starring Sylvester Stallone, and Weekend at Bernie's, an uproarious comedy about two slackers who have to maintain that the host of a party they're attending is alive when in fact he's dead. Wake in Fright tells the story of a young teacher who spends most of his time educating kids in a hamlet in the middle of the outback, who when travelling back to Sydney to see his girlfriend, a character who may or may not exist, he loses all his money betting in a hick town nicknamed the Yabba, and ends up spending time in the degrading machismo world of the kangaroo-hunting miners who live there. I guess the first question is, this film has almost been lost for about 40 years, and it's a terrific film that seems to fit very well with the zeitgeist of the early 1970s. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts why the film uh, almost disappeared for four decades?
1: Well, you you know, Alex, one thing... It is not an unusual experience which, which was discovered in the process of trying to find the film. Well, the, film the film went to the Cannes Film Festival, it, and um, in 1971, the, the French loved it, mm. the men under existential stress and all that. And it played in Paris on the Champs-Élysées for nine months. Mm. But France but France was the only country where Wake and Flight succeeded in, in, in America, under the title Outback, it got superb reviews from Pauline Kael and Christopher Isherwood, and Rex Reed chose it as one of the ten best of 1971. But but the United Artists felt the film was not was not uh, didn't believe in the film at all that it would do uh, succeed financially, and and so they they didn't spend any money advertising it, and it died. Hmm. The um, so the um, what happens is that. Um, when a film, they, they yanked the film quickly and it showed nowhere else in the United States. And that was that. Group hmm. W Films, who had financed the film, they were, they were a British company, actually, Group W, set up by West, and um, they had an Australian partner. And the, the film, they went into bankruptcy, Group W Films, and the film was swallowed up by creditors. Uh-huh. And as time passed, there were no prints left, so no one was able to see it again. Hmm. But the other thing is, you know, in this, in this capitalist world <laughs> that we live in, the thing is not successful. The film is just a useless piece of celluloid, taking up house unnecessary house room. Hmm. And and um, and it is not contrary to what I think an uncommon experience when when Tony Buckley, the, the brilliant editor of the film, took up the challenge. He he was damned after 25 years. Like, um, what what had happened to negative? He um, he um, on his own ex- his own um, at his own expense. He Travel all over. We went first. I went to London because the film, the film was processed in London, Alex. Mm. It was uh, by problem because it was let's say, a British company, and was processed at at, um, at Pinewood Studios. So he went to Pinewood, and he said, "What happened to the film?" I said, ah, he said, "You know," uh, he said, um, the, "the I don't know." He said, "Well, what happened? What did you do with it?" He said, "Well, we sent it back to these creditors in the United States, and they, they didn't know where though." Um, so the film had kind of seemingly disappeared. And and as he was going out the door, they said, "Oh, by the way, Mr. Bucket, we have these nine films here um, that no one wants." And he says, we're, "We're tired. We haven't got storage space for them. We're going to dump them in the garbage can." Just can you do you know anything about them? <laughs> 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 you know, so so as I say, it's not an uncommon thing. If a film is not, it seems to be worthless financially. Mm. Um, it's not to be not to be kept. Yeah. And um, and just, anyway. He finally tracked it down, as you know, into a warehouse in Pittsburgh, of all places. And there were over 200 cans of negative uh, tri-separations, into positives inter-negatives, wow. dialogue tracks, music tracks, and uh, in two large containers. And on the outside of the containers was written in big red letters for destruction. <laughs> Had Tony arrived only one week later, the negative would have been incinerated and the film lost forever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, so the, the, that that was the history of it. I think just simple, uh, and, it was, and it was only a lot of it had to do with the fact that was, for the Australians, this film, they thought this was a great, and Tony thought the film was an, an Australian masterpiece, mm. and and uh, the Australians loved that film, and and the critics, they said, "Come on, we this is a, this is a quintessential quintessential Australian film. We, we've got to find it. It's part of our part of our culture." Mm. And it was only because I think of that that, that, that that the film was, as you said, otherwise the film would have been burned. Yeah. As it is, even with with, with Tony loving it so much, it still came within a week of B. <laughs> <laughs> Disappearing
0: permanently. (laughs) I suppose the reason that, apart from its reception in France, the reason that I'm so surprised that it disappeared is that it came out within a year of two other films that dealt with similar themes of the violence and the savagery of masculinity, which is to say, Deliverance and Straw Dogs. And it fits as an almost unofficial trilogy looking at three different English speaking countries, America, England, and Australia, which is examining how men get on with other men at the outskirts of um, society.
1: Yeah, there were great films. Oh, you're absolutely right. But, but but England at the time, England, and, uh, you know, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, carry on. Sorry. What's your question?
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, I was wondering if there was something almost in the zeitgeist in that time, because all three films were made within about a year of each other, whether there was something uh-huh. going on, discussions in the media or society at large about there being almost a crisis of masculinity.
1: I think what I think it's very interesting you should say that, Alex, because when I, when I screened the film for myself, not having seen it for a long time, I looked at it and said, wow, this director, this man, he was really despondent about human beings and despairing about, about who they are and what they're doing. And um, so I tried, to heart, I tried to think back after 30 years to what I was experiencing at the time. I knew the 60s were a bad time. I mean, for the first time, because of the H-bomb and, the, mm. and Russia versus America, the human beings were able to, the whole world was able to commit suicide. And mm. if we would unleashed these bombs, that was the end of humanity. And at the same time, the Vietnam War, and it was just, I don't know, I'm going over all the same old crap all the time after World War II. Having been through World War II, you think we would all learned our lessons. But no, now, we, now, we, now we're carrying on uh, in the same old destructive way. So I think that um, I, I, at the time, I, I think that, that I felt this, that within each one of us is this dark shadow side mm. of human nature, and that uh, it seems that education and civilization are a thin defense against the yaku in each one of us, mm. and that we're all capable of, of things that are morally culpable. Mm. Um, and as a central character, does things he never dreamed, of. He, a central character... Um, uh, he finds his, his sense of superiority is unwarranted. He does things that he never dreamed of to, pers- to prove his virility, and he becomes one of the people he scorned. And that we're all basically we're all in the same existential boat. That's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And um, but I, I felt this very strongly when I saw the film mm. after a long, a long period of. And I noticed at one point. A thing that I I had done back then, he dumps the books on the outback, which is, I guess, civilization and learning and education. Mm. One of the books was Plato's Dialogues that was dumped and left behind, useless, useless in this world. Mm. Anyway.
0: And another thing I thought that was really interesting about the film is the ambiguity that... You leave it up to the viewer's interpretation just exactly what it is that happens between John Grant and Donald Pleasant's character in The Shack before it fades to white. And then even the existence of John's girlfriend is almost ambiguous because the only scenes you ever see her in are that kind of Bo Derek fantasy by the waves and the photo in his wallet. So there is a possible right. interpretation that he's actually invented her, that she doesn't even exist.
1: Yes, it could be. It could be. It could only exist in his mind, mm. something he'd like to pursue when he got to Sydney, but had never, had never, called, never been consummated in any anything. You're absolutely right.
0: I mean, were those things <laughs> that were implicit in the script, or did you decide to actually add an extra level of ambiguity to what's being presented?
1: Well, I think, I think they were. I think we thought about it in the script, but certainly, I, in that particular instance, about the woman, mm. I felt that this could be a figment of his, his imagination. You know. Yes, that's, that's very perspicacious you say that because I remember feeling that. And I just I wonder if she really exists. <laughs> I mean, exists in terms of his life or whether somebody that he got a picture of and they dreaming about, it, as you say, a Bo Derrick type. Hmm. It's interesting.
0: Because also, I mean, having been stranded in the Yabba, he never phones her. He never writes to say, I've missed my flight. See you you know, next year, <laughs> which that's again right. kind of adds to the possibility that she doesn't really exist.
1: That's right, exactly. <laughs> he never does, whether he does because he's ashamed of his what he's, what's happened to him mm. or whether she, uh, as you say, she doesn't exist. Um, I leave it up to the audience's imagination.
0: Mm. And the scene as well, which people have read as a possible rape of Donald Pleasance's character towards him. I mean, again, it's left ambiguous whether that is a full-on um, assault or there's some kind of consensual thing going on you know we never know what really happened except that it's enough to make him want to finally leave the town
1: <laughs> yes well, I, i'm all of all of the above
0: <laughs> mm. <laughs> i mean I, I suppose you know the the possible homoerotic reading is, you know, a kind of all the bare flesh that's shown earlier in the movie when you have the various miners hanging out in the bar together. There is a certain homoerotic quality, presumably because of the absence of women, that these men have this almost unrequited um, desire for each other.
1: Well, you know, it was curious um, when I first went there, uh, I learned that men outnumber the women three to one in the town of Broken Hill. So I said to the editor of the local newspaper, whom I took out to dinner, I said, well, where, where are the brothels? He said, there are no brothels. <laughs> there are no brothels? Well, what do they do for human contact? Human beings can't survive without human contact. He says, they fight. And rapidly, I, I discovered what I, everybody always wanted to fight me because I looked like a 60s hippie when I was there. <laughs> and, um, but, but I rapidly discovered that, um, Alex, said it wasn't belligerence in the fighting. I mean they didn't want they didn't want to hit me, they wanted me to hit them mm. because you know I, I grew up in the streets of Toronto how do you win and uh, one of the things I learned as a kid, how do you win a street fight? You start it
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the guy the guy who hits first wins ninety seven percent of the time the mm. guy goes down, and that's the end of it you know and so the, these tough, tough miners are putting their jaw right in my face, I could have broken their jaw mm. so I've I, I rapidly discovered you know the, as I say, they didn't. They didn't want to hit me. They wanted me to hit them because this, this was the easiest way to get touched by another human being. Hitting. Mm. <laughs> so um, I, I just found it. Um, I found it fascinating. All that. Mm. I mean, and I tried it, to suggest that in that in that kind of thing. At the after the when they're after the uh, after the uh, kangaroo hunt, when they they smash up that bar mm. and they, the guys, the two the two uh, kangaroo hunters get into a fight and then. Donald Pleasant joins in and they'll roll around in in the dirt, as you say, in a kind of a homoerotic way.
0: Mm. It's interesting that certainly the films that you made in the 70s and early 80s that were within the drama thriller genre, like First Blood, Uncommon Valor, and obviously Wake and Fright, you seem to be dealing with this idea of a crisis of masculinity and also characters that have been damaged by their surroundings, whether it's the Vietnam War or their isolation from society. What yeah. do you think it was that kept attracting you back to that story as a filmmaker?
1: Well, there were two things that I always attracted. I think one thing I attracted me is the people, the characters who don't know anything about themselves. Mm. And then but, but within all of us, I think. You know, Alex is, and, I, and, I, and it's me. I don't. I often say to myself, "Why did I do that? Why am I thinking this? Why did I say that?" I mean, and I get, I'm puzzled sometimes by my own character and behavior. And I feel somehow that human beings, that who feel this, put themselves in situations where they, they're led into self-knowledge, as Gary Bond puts himself in. He thinks he's, he thinks he doesn't know that he's put himself in a situation where he's going to have to encounter himself, whether he likes it or not. And uh, I think it's, it's a... It's and um, Duty Kravitz is another one. I mean, one of, one of, the, guys, one of the characters in Duty Kravitz, the apprentice from Duty Kravitz, says to him, Kravitz, why do you always run around like you've got a red-hot poker up your ass? <laughs> and that's, the, that's the, the, the thrust of the film. Why does he run around like he's got a red-hot poker up his ass? <laughs> um, and and uh, so the it, subject, as it's, I it's, it's a, it's a say, uh, I mean, it's the famous. Um, John Rambo and John Rambo, as you say, has been wounded, injured by the whole experience of killing, and it's made him. He doesn't. He feels he has no place in society anymore. And uh, originally, that film was about. It was a suicide, like a suicide mission, mm. and he he committed Harry Carey at the end. And we changed the ending for this whole separate story, but um, but you're absolutely right. I guess it just it's all reflection of the same same kind of despair.
0: And then I guess to chew yourself up, you did the odd screwball comedy like Fun with Dick and Jane and Weekend at Bernie's in between these darker projects. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, of all the films that I have done, Alex, everybody has seen uh, First Blood, the first Rambo film, all over the world and weekend at Bernie's. Everybody has seen Weekend at
2: Bernie's.
1: It's <laughs> funny though. The idea that you that you drag a dead buddy around pretending to be that it's alive. <laughs>
0: Thinking of your directing style in the early 70s, you were still a fairly young director. You'd done a bit of TV, you'd done um, a movie, you'd been working in both uh, Britain and America. What would you say were your influences at that time? Because as an outside observer, there seems to be a bit of a spaghetti Western influence on Wake and Fright from kind of, you know, I suppose maybe the landscape almost suggests that, you know, the bleakness and the yeah, desert, well, but I even the music knew, as well. Um, you what's the
1: name? name? Once Upon a Time in the West, you know, um, what's the director?
0: Leone, Sergio Leone.
1: Yes, yeah, Sergio Leone. I knew Sergio Leone. Ah. And he, he distributed *The Kravitz for me in, in Italy. Um, and we, we sat together, became, we became quite good friends, actually, for a while. So may, once upon a time, in the West maybe had an influence on me. I don't know. Mm. But there is a kind of a the the world of the world of First Blood certainly, the world of, of 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 what am I talking? Wake and Fight <laughs> um, certainly is is reminiscent of 19th century Western America. Mm. You know, but but as for the directors that I that I worshipped <laughs> in the 60s, I was a big Fellini and Antonioni. I loved their film. I love the way they staged for the camera, mm. and so it was so easy and didn't didn't draw attention to itself, and it was perf- perfectly fresh and original. Then, then also, I like the New Wave, in Paris, Jean-Luc Godard, you know, those that whole that whole generation of European filmmakers gone forever now. But those are the ones that I really admired and, and would, would like to have. Now, whether whether you, you think that's uh, a delusion, and no, I don't know. <laughs> no, not at all.
0: <laughs> well, I think huh? certainly, you know, the the celebrated scene of the kangaroo hunt has an element of cinéma vérité to it because you're incorporating yeah. actual documentary footage into the narrative. Yeah,
1: that's true. But you know all about that.
0: Mm.
1: The um, because I, I couldn't I wanted to, to the whole the whole intention of the film, of course, was to, to is immersive. Mm -hmm. To immerse the audience in the reality of the outback and what was going on out there, and uh, of course the the the, uh, kangaroo hunt was, of course, was the um, was like the was like the uh, climax of the whole of the whole picture for for, for our central character. In any case, you know Uh, he he does things that he never dreamed of, as I said earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, Any rate, uh, the but I had a real problem, as you suggest, you know, because I'm I'm a first of all I'm a vegetarian. (laughs) Alex, I don't eat mm. meat and I don't and I don't the idea of killing an animal for a film would for a fictional film was an anathema mm. unpardonable um, but and I was only saved by a member of the crew said to me you know Ted they kill hundreds of kangaroos every night out of the outback I said no I did not know that mm. he said yeah they, I said what for he said for the for the pet food industry, they ship they ship the carcasses to America. I said, you mean American cats and dogs are fed on kangaroos? He said, that's right. Huh. Anyway, I went. I uh, persuaded a pair of hunters because what happened is a big refrigerator truck, huge, and they'd send six pairs of hunters in stock trucks in different directions, and they would come back and shoot ten or fifteen kangaroos, skin them, decapitate them. And then dump them, give them to the refrigerator truck, and I go out and kill, kill ten more, ten dozen, fifteen more. And they would kill every night. They were killing each pair of hundred and kill about seventy-five kangaroos. Mm. And um, and I persuaded a pair of them to let me to let me photograph. And so you're right. That's the whole that all that stuff. I was very fortunate in many ways that I was able to to, to shoot like a documentary film about the hunting of kangaroos. Mm. And um, I had with me always a, a representative from the Royal Australian Prevention of Cruelty to Animals with me, so that we get a seal, seal of approval. And he was urging me, said, so "Please, Ted, please use this footage. Use the worst." He wanted me to use the most bloodiest footage. Some of it, I tell you, Alex, I said, "I'm sorry, I can't use the bloodiest. The audience will go screaming out of out of the theater if they already haven't left." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't use the worst. I mean, the, it was just unbelievable. Some of the footage. Mm. And. uh, he said, you don't understand that the people in the cities like Adelaide, Melbourne, so they don't know what Sydney, they don't know what's going on in the ALPAC. Mm. And the fact that this, this extermination and massacre uh, of my kangaroos. And I said, fine. Anyway, the only gratifying thing, Alex, 15 years ago, I guess it must be now, 15, 20 years ago, I get a phone call from this guy. And he said, Ted, got to tell you, we got a piece of good news. I said, what was that? He said, as a result of your film and our politics in the Australian government passed a need to prevent, prohibiting the slaughter of kangaroos for the American pet food
0: industry. Huh. Wow.
1: So the cinema verite worked.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, and it's interesting that the, your film still has the power to shock that people, you know, are even walking out of screenings these days um, because of those scenes. And yet, you know, you'd it's... think that modern audiences had almost become more immune to violence because of the films like, you know, the Soil uh, franchise and other horror films that are increasingly, you know, bloody and sadistic these days in comparison.
1: Yeah. Well, well I, think, I think the reason I think the film did not succeed uh, commercially in the United States originally was, United, I just felt, they said, no one in America is going to come and see this film and, they, and they're all going, going to be horrified by the kangaroo hunt and they're going to leave the cinema in droves. That's what they predicted. I don't know whether it was true or not, but I think I think that certainly a lot of people found it very, very hard, hard watching.
0: Mm. A lot of your work in recent years has been in television and franchise TV shows. I was wondering now with the reappraisal of Wake and Fright, whether you'd be tempted to do another independent film that perhaps would let you deal with subjects that are less mainstream than the offers that are on the table.
1: Yes, um, I am... Um, right in the middle of. I hope, I hope that that I hope that film works in, in the UK. Mm. Um, certainly would help the situation. I loved England. I loved the England, living in England. Mm. And uh, as you know, it was it was uh, actually wake and fight that uh, that it was one of the first times I my first four films were all shot in Britain.
2: Mm. Like
1: you know, um, as, you, as you know, uh, a room at the at the top and two gentlemen sharing, etc. etc. The guy who wrote two gentlemen sharing. Mm-hmm. Evan Jones also wrote the script of uh, *Weekend Frank*. But yeah, so I'm always interested in. Um, I'm always attracted to these offbeat subjects, <laughs> <laughs> less, as you say, less mainstream. And uh, I have a couple of projects, but uh, which I'm involved in.
0: Cool. Well, but- I mean, I think it's a terrific film, and I think you know, you said that people remember you for First Blood* and *Weekend at Bernie's*. But I think this will certainly, you know, add some, you know, cachet to your career that perhaps is long overdue.
1: Oh, thanks, Alex. That's very, very nice, kind of you to say so. I really appreciate it. I hope, I hope that from your mouth to God's ear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Indeed. Well, and, and fingers crossed that you 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 know get uh, some more challenging projects off the ground. Absolutely. It was, well, it was great to talk to you.
1: Was, I enjoyed talking to you, and I, I think you're very perspicacious in your in your assessment as
0: well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Wake in Fright is showing in selected cinemas now in London and Cardiff and is released on DVD and Blu-ray at the end of the month. Next, here's my brief interview with Terry Gilliam from the Q&A at the London Film Festival last year about his new movie, The Zero Theorem. The theme of this movie is something that has cropped up in Brazil, in Twelve Monkeys and The Fisher King, of someone kind of driven mad by their environment, perhaps about driven mad by modernity. And I was wondering why that's a theme that you keep being drawn back to.
3: I think every soul makes sense of the world, and so I make it a movie which, to me, is describing the world I see, and think i really got it cracked, and then a year later I discovered I was completely wrong, so I'll start again. <laughs> it goes on, and at the moment, you know, uh, the modern, the web, uh, modern connectivity is a damaging sword, sort, and it's both wonderful and it's terrifying, and I think it it's supposed to be bringing us together. I think it's actually isolating us more and more. And it certainly makes it easier when you've got people like the NSA I mean, uh, It's great. It? They're listen to everything we're doing. Each of us is really wonderful. There are millions of little spies out there listening because we're so interesting. I mean, this is the kind of nonsense side of it. So I don't really know what the answers are. But my attitude is raise some and questions, points, and, you know figures of things that bother me and see if they um, affect the other people. All it's about, I never think it's the future. I think it's what we're living in now. I just distorted it a bit, pushed it a little bit. In fact, I kept finding this one. We would Like at the beginning on the road, Renault gave us 15 Twizzies, the little cars. And I'd never seen one before, but by the time I got back to London, there was one parked by our house in Hermann Higgett. Well, the future has arrived, and that's what, like the like line that Gwendolyn says, uh, the future has come and gone were you don't miss out the next time. <laughs> it feels like the future is actually working backwards. Things like the party with everybody with their iPads and all, dancing, not communicating with each other. We finished all that and I discovered parties are going on like that already, so it's all out there. I, mean, I just distorted it and tried to confuse it by having a bit of retro technology mixed with future technology. And the one thing I thought was interesting, liquid memory. And the next thing I knew, I was reading I think, the BBC website. They were using DNA and other sort of bodily fluids as a potential basis for computer memory. So I think, I think films are probably moving to the future faster than the future is moving to the future. <laughs> <laughs> I gave up on utopian thinking. I, I just sort of watch what's happening and wonder where it's gonna go. And and sort of aware of how much noise we make against certain things. There's a there's a wave things that things sort of go until they fall off cliff I think. And so I'm I'm not particularly hopeful of the future because I honest. I think there's so many things going wrong well that we don't seem to be able to stop. And um, uh, I'd rather think that a less than good one would be surprised that it turns out to be okay. <laughs> like, right. I mean, these things happen. You know, Life is you know, something that is around you. It was basically something to do the um, second half of last year because I love the job. That's what I do. <laughs>
0: Uh, nothing to do with it. I had no interest in the film, the ideas, nothing. I was betting against our
3: um, day with technology, of, the, um, of connectivity, of um, national um, security agency top of the end. None of those things were important. It was just about a guy who liked working on his computers, so get involved in it. <laughs> <laughs> in a sense, it was, it was very strange when we, when we finished shooting it, and we're in the editing room. And, I was just throwing out all the bits that we didn't like. Uh, it, was a, it was more more triage than editing. Um, and, uh, and, and what came out was, uh, was Melody in the love story, which was so powerful and she was so wonderful and he was so vulnerable and um, unable to um, go away with her. It was very tragic. Terrible. <laughs> I mean, I really like casting people against type. Because it's so easy for actors, especially successful actors, to get trapped in a uh, kind of character, an image that people expect them to be like the film. And they're good actors. And so I like grabbing people and putting them in parts that might not normally, or we haven't seen them do, before, and let them, let them on the fly. I mean, that's what it's about. I mean, I don't, I don't think I direct as much as sort of just create a situation that people enjoy working in and, and they them. Magic. They just keep the camera pointed in one direction completely. And Christoph is magnificent always, and I think this shows another side of the way we can see. He's been really inventive, so there's no question about it. But this is a man that's—it's—he's it's, so vulnerable and confused and damaged, and it's there. I mean, the great thing about him, since the film is really—you know—eighty-five percent is just on him, is that. Cutting it was so easy, because he gives us so much every moment, there's something going on, and it's surprising, it's interesting. And it's never, it's never playing into the gallery, it's very subtle, it's there. It's a fantastic work, <laughs> You write something, you find the characters, and then hopefully you are drawn to um, something that fulfills the job. You think of on the other hand, that's what's great work with Irene, because she always throws up other names that I'm not thinking about, and, uh, and, to me, it's trying to surprise myself all the time getting people that I wasn't thinking about to um, play a role. Yeah. You just want to work with great actors. Uh, and it's as simple as that, just shooting is a rather tedious process at times you thought about advance, and you can go through it in a very mechanical kind of way. But it's the actors that every day come in and doing something new to it, a <laughs> different And that's what keeps me alive when we're working. So, more and more I think I drifted away from the bigger things I did earlier, but also not drifting away. I'm not even Molly really Wayne or something else. <laughs> so let you work smaller and just work with great actors, and, and you then work together and create, create the seeds. That's what's happening with Christoph and me. Every day we go and argue about why those words, why it's up there in the script. Let's say We're to work and then shift it and suddenly off can pop it was It was working fast, and that's also nice to just really, like. Giving space for the actors is what it's about. And I don't know if you're aware of I'm not using all the wonderful cuts and close ups and things and angles that go on in most films. I just want to give space for them to work and say, Mr. Marx, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, this film was done very little, and, and almost everybody in worked for the Fashion, but they no normally work for. I mean, that was a great thing, about the British cast. It came down. Basically, work the scale just to play with us And that was wonderful. These are ways the producers get to pay us less by a credit. And work with good people, and they're constantly bringing new things to you. Again, trying to create an atmosphere where everybody can do what they're best at and do it well and come up with ideas. So many films seem to be people are intimidated to actually show them all these new ideas. So I've got to have a million ideas, and I become I'm just a filter. I always said that they, when people said, Oh, you're a film tour, I said, No, I'm a future. <laughs> <laughs> These are, I get credit for most ideas. and only a fraction in our mind. There other people's like ideas. And I said, oh, That's part of the world we're trying to create. It's about this. And, um, and then you don't sleep well. That's the <laughs> other way. <thing. laughs> <laughs> I don't know anymore about how the system works. We're <laughs> exactly, technically good about it. it's so like, you ship some of They've intelligent. And, Tell us the most interesting thing going on. What's going in cinema right now? The writing is coming out of um, cable television in America. The and I don't know where some of them is going now because, you know, basically Hollywood makes movies that are $150 million and more. And they go out, and then the rest of the film is $10 million or and less. And then how do you get distribution for the film? Because you're against the big ones. The exhibitors need to make money. They, they weren't safe. It's I don't think it's very telephone, oh, so I television certainly Netflix
2: and,
3: <laughs> <laughs> and that I've actually been talking to Neil Gaiman, and certainly some people on TriPraphs about something. whether uh, whether it's time to come to put on television six-part series. It might be better than a two and a half hour film we can do. Anyway, I say something about this. I've been planning about planning it. this film you may not have noticed. I don't know how many of you noticed. At the edge of it, running this, around the square corner like that, now, did you notice the corners are slightly curved? There's a reason for that. Because this, is, this is the first one-size-fits-all full-frame semi-final motion picture. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> because what we did, your computer, your iPhone, your intelligence rate is the proportions of 16 by 9. What you see there is 185 to 1. So we shot our 16 by 9, and that's the proportions of it. So people will see exactly the same thing when they're in the cinema, and watch on television, or watching on their iPhone. The really awful people will
2: see exactly <laughs> <the same thing. laughs>
3: so that. Well, the other thing we did, that's the one size fits all part. The full frame is, is what you're seeing is what you used to see if you were in the 1920s watching cinema, when what you'd see is exactly what the camera saw what the gate inside the camera the film goes through, it's got rounded corner and it's what well, you see there. Everything's visible, but in the modern world, there's a safety area which both films use, which cropped off, so you don't the and gates and all the silly things in the dirty gate. We've shown the entire frame. You see exactly what the camera is. There's nothing hidden on that one. Everything is and that's the full frame part. The semi bottom part is film is analog, uh, just like you know old thirty-three third are people like animal, or some people like animal. So that's the vinyl part of the film, but it's two hundred and fifty uh, Effect shots in, which are digital, so that's a cat and say full vinyl, semi-vinyl, and so much picture. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Terry Gilliam's film, The Zero Theorem, is released in selected UK cinemas on the 14th of March, and is well worth a watch as it's his most visually fantastical film since his Madness trilogy of the 1990s. The Electric Sheep magazine podcast was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production and you can hear all previous episodes at www.electricsheepmagazine.com stroke events. The theme of the current issue of Electric Sheep Magazine Online is films with complicated titles, and you can read my review of The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed-Up Zombies on the website now, alongside all the usual features, reviews and interviews. And there'll be a new episode of the Electric Sheep Magazine podcast online soon. Thanks for listening.